Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have a very special event and uh, something I've been looking forward to for a while. And that is we finally have a woman that I can interview that has been on, on board to tears with all the men on this show. Uh, and she is a very, very successful seasoned person in the alternative space. She is the founder of Alternative Wealth Partners, which is a private equity company. She has helped companies raise almost $1 billion in private capital. So this is going to be a fantastic conversation with Kellyanne Winget. Kellyanne, welcome to Street Smart Success. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, you you got it. So um, I know you're there in the Lone Star State, mm-hmm. uh, which is absolutely booming. And uh, do do you and yours come from the Lone Star State, or are you like so many other people, uh, migrants there? No, I am from Dallas, Texas. I am from Dallas, Texas. I born and raised. Um, my father's from Texas. My mom is from the East Coast, but got here, you know, in the late seventies, went to college in Dallas, so and has never left. I did leave for a short period of time in California, but I did come right back. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you did the reverse thing, you know. Instead, yes. California's moving. Yeah, you, yeah, and it never works the other way, you know. Uh, with, with, <laughs> and, and you and you prove that. So your your mom was not from there. She she went to school there in the late seventies. And where does she hail from originally? She was born in Pennsylvania and grew up in Cold Spring Cold Spring Harbor, New York, so Long Island. I see. Okay, where in Pennsylvania? King of Prussia. Okay, so, yeah, yeah, Philadelphia-ish. Okay, so she's got East East Coast cred for sure. So <laughs> so Dallas meets East Coast, and so your your product of of, of various stock. How in the world does uh, one like yourself uh, find themselves into the alternative space? So um, I was born into it. Both my parents were in the financial services, accountants, CPAs. My father worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers for about 30 years before he passed away. And my mom did several different things. She worked for two different oil companies. She sold sugar companies. She had another contracting um, documents business that she sold before they had kids. My parents were fixing and flipping apartment complexes and houses in like the 70s and 80s. And uh, so we were just raised in an entrepreneurial household. And I get a lot of that from my parents. They were flipping apartments in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and both having jobs at the same time? Yes. So um, they actually bought a house in a place that's called Canyon Creek. It's a um, Now it's a very foo-foo neighborhood um, in Richardson, Texas, north of Dallas, about 30 minutes. And uh, it's a golf course community. And when they decided to move in there after college, they were the youngest couple in the neighborhood. Like it was all just old retired people living on the golf course. And they decided to buy this house and, you know, renovate it for 25 years while we were living there. (laughs) (laughs) But they were constantly working on the house. And I think that kind of triggered that becoming more of the kind of growing family neighborhood. Because eventually, like, they weren't the youngest people in the neighborhood, 
It was the, you know, the neighborhood that the kids were running up and down the street to their friends' houses. So, you know, they were, I I always believe that they were very ahead of their time. And my mother's always been that way. Uh, I get a lot of my inspiration in what I invest in and, and how I, you know, behave in the world from her. Wow. Uh, that's, uh, I'm sure she, uh, must appreciate that, especially if you've told her that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Got it. Um, and so Kelly, so you, you know, you, I mean, my hats are off to you. I mean, uh, hats off to you. You started, a you know, your own, you know, PE company, like that's like pretty amazing. And so when, when did you do that and why did you do that? And kind of what is the orientation of it? What exactly are you doing? Sure. So um, I decided this in the middle of the pandemic, uh, which was the perfect time to start a business. And, (laughs) um, And I think people are realizing that. I think it was actually the best time to start a business. And uh, it came from just the last decade of working um, working independently, but alongside a lot of different people. And I used all of these skills and networks I had built uh, for other people. And it got to a point that I didn't believe in the people that I was partnering with anymore. Um, I had gotten to a place where I was, you know, in a room of, of people who are managing several billion dollars worth of assets under management. And the information that was flowing from the top to the investors was just... Um, in my opinion, gross. So I just didn't want to be a part of that uh, community anymore. I wanted investors to have access to real information about what they're investing in, um, having somebody that is accessible. So when they do have questions, they're available. And you know, from that experience, I just it was just an aha moment uh, the summer of 2020 that you know I have enough experience now when I know that I'm the smartest person in the room with people who are managing billions of dollars, I should probably just do this myself. So that's where Alternative Wealth Partners came from. It took us about eight months to finally kind of put together what we were going to come to market with, which is our diversified fund one. And you know, I, I made the phone calls, I had the relationships, I found the assets and decided, okay, this is what I'm going to the investors with. And we started taking investment capital June of 2021. Got it. Okay. And how much have you raised? I guess that's probably not a cool question to ask, or is it? You tell sure. me. Yeah, no, I think that people need to be comfortable talking with money. And that's kind of the biggest problem that I've seen in the last decade is that people get uncomfortable talking about money. And the thing is, is that it's literally all made up. So um, we've raised over $15 million. uh, And that basically has come in in the last mm, probably seven months towards, uh, I guess we're in September, so eight months. Uh, we had a majority of that capital come in uh, towards the tail end of 2021. And then we've been really aggressive just in the last few months bringing in capital just because of the, we're already sending dividends out to investors and we already have an equity exit um, plan for the end of the year. And we've only been in that asset for six months. So this is a really fast moving fund, and which is unusual for PE. So for your listeners who aren't familiar with private equity, I'm... Um, they probably have a lot of experience in real estate. Uh, that's where everybody kind of gets their start, right? Real estate is super accessible. You don't have to have a lot of money or even your own money involved in deals. Um, there's no barrier of entry. You don't have to necessarily be accredited. Uh, an 18-year-old can like wake up one day and decide to be a real estate investor. Um, 
this is kind of my, this is why I don't play in the real estate space. There's too many, um, there's too many people that can participate. So that's kind of the big push of why I like private equity. But the difference is, is that there are kind of some barriers to entry. You have to be an accredited investor. So you have to have a million dollar net worth or high income. Um, there is a super big lot risk of loss because it's not technically like a registered security. So there's not really a government entity controlling um, the outcome of the investment. Uh, it's not, it can be just an equity. There's no collateral. There's, you know, these are the types of things, risks that exist in private equity. But I've worked on each one of these kinds of deals and decided that, you know, there's a way to mitigate a lot of that risk by being diversified. So I've packaged it into one entity. So an investor, instead of going through and trying to find individual assets for their portfolio, $50,000 at a time, they can take that same investment capital, $100,000 or $250,000, and then they get their pro rata share of, we're up to 25 different assets. Then they get a blended rate of return from those assets. Um, right now, we're generating somewhere between a 12 and 15% dividend uh, that, pay, that pays out on a quarterly basis while we wait for the multiple return on the equity exits. So when we exit these assets, we'll make an additional three to five times our capital. So we get cash flow while we wait, and then we get these big, large capital gains at the end. Okay. So so let me stop you there because I have a bunch of questions. Sure. Um, first of all, you had said that, um, and it sounds like you're doing phenomenally well, which is good for you and your investors. You had said, like when I asked you about money, and you said, "Hey, no problems, cool." Uh, it's, mm-hmm. You said it's all. It's you said it's all made up anyway. Yeah. yeah. What what is it? What does that mean? Well, um, it's it's one of these things where we're in like really high inflation time. Okay. So, and the published numbers like eight point six or something. But the reality for normal people that aren't you know economists or the federal government are experiencing like two times grocery bills. You know, they were spending 150 a couple of weeks ago at the grocery. Now they're spending 300. That's not 8%. Okay. So the reality is, is that the inflation number is closer to 15 or 20% for real people. So if you're sitting on cash, your, your buying power is decreasing 20% a year. Okay. That, that's terrible. So if you're not buying assets that can beat inflation at 15%, um, you're losing money. So the quicker that you can kind of get it moving and stuff, that that's going to be better for you. That's why I say it's all made up because it's changing all of the time and you just have to stay kind of like blinders on, focused on your goals and investing that way or saving that way, knowing that um, you know these things are going to be constantly changing. And so you just have to come up with your own strategy and your own philosophy surrounding your money. I hear you. Hey, look, um, you know, I'm an accredited investor, but you know what? I'd be lying to say I don't feel it when I see a hundred hundred dollars, and I'm in the the golden state of California that you love so much. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I I'd be lying to say I don't notice it when it's you know takes a hundred bucks to fill my tank up, or right. when, when or when I go to a restaurant, you know, uh, in in what cost seems like a year ago, $20 cost 40. Like, and I eat out like all the time because my wife doesn't listen to this podcast. So I could say that she's a terrible cook and and it'll never get back to her. So I mean, I eat out every single meal and it's like double. And I'd be lying to say it doesn't, it's not going to change how I live, but it's, 
but but I notice it. So I I, I hear you loud and clear. So, yeah, it definitely, it definitely changes. Like, oh, I really like to go to the steakhouse three times a week. So maybe we'll go to that steakhouse twice a week instead. Um, and that that kind of reality is something that these big hedge funds and really big private equity companies like don't understand when they're talking to what they call a retail investor, which is Main Street, right? You have somebody who's worth over a billion dollars making these management decisions when their client base are, you know, regular millionaires, right? And they notice when they write a check, whether it's for a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars, they notice when it's gone. And somebody who has over a billion dollars doesn't notice a million dollar check gone. And they just they cannot connect. And that was that was the biggest, that was the moment where when they couldn't understand the conversations I was having with the investors of them being upset about something and then being like, well, that's just the risk. I'm like, it, I understand it's a risk, but they wrote the check and you are not calling them and telling them, sorry, you know? And that was the experience that I was like, I would never be able to look an investor in the eye and tell them everything's okay when it's not. And I think that's the biggest difference between what I'm doing and what, you know, what most people are doing in this space. You know, I think what you're doing is wonderful because, you know, I'm, I, I've been getting into alternatives, you know, in a very concentrated way personally in the last couple of years, which is largely while I'm, why I'm doing this podcast. And um, this, I don't, it might come as a surprise, but I'm not a billionaire. So I'm that, I'm that guy that you're describing that I cut that check and it it took a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work and a lot, a lot, a lot of years to compile the meager resources that I have. And so when I cut that check and then all of a sudden the communication sucks and the checks don't come. And by the way, the in a way, the communication sucking is even worse because, you know, I'm a big boy, kind of. I mean, I, I get that things don't always go right. But then when there's poor communication, um, I, I don't I don't enjoy that. And so, but yet, you know, alternatives are where you know the cash flow is. It's not a you know a two percent dividend that gets taxed. Um, right. It's where the cash flow is and in in appreciation is, et cetera, et cetera. But people like me don't. I, I don't. I'm I'm flying by the seat of my pants. Right. So what you do is fantastic because then I don't have to do that. Um, Tell me about the exit that you already had within the fund. That sounds super exciting. What kind of company and all that stuff. So um, the way that we have this, uh, the AWP Diversity Fund One was about building a really solid, diversified portfolio because this is for investors to one, want to be passive, um, but also wanting to educate themselves uh, and and get the diversification they're looking for without having to like go find it all, right? Um, we invest in everything from like oil and gas to cannabis. And we also, the way that we invest in, in things like cannabis, uh, which aren't allowed to be invested in through people's retirement accounts, is that we have all of these things in the cannabis space anyways, um, structured as as debt, right? Debt on on property. So we're not investing in the growing of marijuana. So we're able to take retirement account, put retirement accounts, and put that into a thing like a cannabis uh, investment. 
but the diversified portfolio is blended. So you just are invested in one thing, you get your pro rata share of everything. Uh, one of the companies that we already have an exit coming in at is um, coffee company. So we own a thousand acres out in Jamaica on the Blue Mountains. If you know, if you're a coffee person, Blue Mountain Jamaican Blue Mountain coffee is regulated by the Jamaican government. It is the most expensive coffee in the world. It wholesales somewhere between seventeen and twenty-seven dollars a pound, and that's a, that's the raw green coffee bean. If you buy retail, if you Google like any type, any type of Jamaican Blue Mountain coffee, your pound of like just beans you can roast at home are going to range from somewhere from thirty to sixty or seventy dollars a pound, um, depending on who your roaster is. But we're on the wholesale side, so we we sell the green bean to the companies that go and then go roast them. So we have an offer; um, they've accepted the offer, uh, and we should be closing at the end of the year. I'm probably, I'm hoping it'll go into the beginning of next year because we'll make more money, but. Um, you know, the way that we're structured in that deal is that we have uh, a debt and an equity piece. So they're paying um, 15% on the debt. And then we also have shares in the company. If it closes at the end of the year, we will net around two and a half million dollars. If it closes in the first part of next year, then we'll net closer to $3 million on that investment, which in terms of the return for the investor, it's going to be somewhere around 15% for the quarter. What's the collateral on the debt piece of it, the 15% that you're paying? The land. We mortgaged the land. I see. And how, how did you find, and if you're comfortable discussing it, that's fine. If not, I respect that too. How did you find that investment? So I worked with the team that put this together several years ago. They went in with a different idea. um, And then eventually over the years, it grew into um, the coffee farm. So at that point, they were kind of like co-oping with other farmers. And then it grew into something else. And it was kind of like all over the place. And um, I work with them from the, a consultant's point of view of like, okay, if you're going to start taking investment capital, like this is the deal needs to exist and you have a lot of work to like structure the deal. So when I launched the fund, I went to them and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this fund. I'm going to control the, you know, where the investment capital is coming in and where it's going to go. And I'm going to be able to be a better partner for you because now we're going to have capital involved. So at that point, they had really honed into how they were going to scale the coffee uh, farm. And so it took a long time to get to the point where they are now. And it only took them, I think, 18 months with this structure to get to this point with the sale. So we came in with we came in with capital in May and at this, and they're going to close at the end of the year. So, you know, I do a lot of work in the background before I involve any investors capital. And that's my contribution in addition to, you know, paying for all of the fund. But my my biggest contribution to the investors is all of the groundwork I've done over 10 years to finally get to this point where I can manage it myself. And so do you then, well, let me ask this question first is, is I don't, nah, I'm not looking for the, the name, but what's the ownership of the company? Are they Americans that have gone down there and, and, and built up this company or are they Cubans or are they like, what, what's the management, current management it's a, it's ownership a, structure? It's, yeah, it's a United States company run by a bunch of Canadians down in Jamaica. Okay. <laughs> so, um, which is hard for investors to like wrap their head around, right? And so the, 
the benefit of going through like an actively managed fund like mine is that I can handle someone telling me that it's an American company run by Canadians in Jamaica and an individual investor who, you know, might be a CEO of some corporation be like, I, no way am I going to touch that. Uh, but in reality is I, I understand the structure. I've been there. I've met the team. I've gone to Jamaica. I've seen the people chopping down the forest with machetes. Like I've, you know, walked up the waterfall to it's a crazy place to be, but it's the people that can accept the crazy will benefit the most, right? These investors that trust me to put their money in the right place are going to make $3 million, right? And the company, there's a lot of really cool partnerships between Jamaica and Canada that exist. So you're in California. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of Mexican workers that come to California to work in the fruit fields, right? during season, and then they go back, right? It's the same for uh, Canadians and Jamaicans. So Jamaicans will come up to Canada during stone fruit season and harvest all stone, all the stone fruits, then go back to Jamaica. And so um, their governments are very closely tied. And so we have a lot of wholesale opportunity in the coffee space there with them. I see. Wow. How how much uh, is the company going to sell for if, if, it, if it comes and gets consummated? Uh, $24 million. Got it. It's, it's exciting stuff. So you've got 25 companies in the fund. And that was one of the questions I was going to ask you is like, what role do, like, do you play a, a management role in these companies or could you play a management? Like, is it active or is it totally passive? I was super curious about that. So the limited partners, the investors are passive. Um, but I mean, with the exception. Oh, yeah. So I, I make the fund very active. I am, I don't like to lose money and I'm going to make sure that I don't lose money. I am on these people 24 seven. You know, I, I'm typically checking in with our asset managers once a week, if not more, how much hand holding they need or where they are. And they're just, we get quarterly dividends from them. It might be a debt offering or something. And then there's some very hands on, which, the Jamaican thing is we're hands off in that case. We are definitely a capital partner, but I'm I'm really close to the team. There are things that we're more hands on. We're invested in a in an ammunition manufacturer here in Texas. And so I'm really hands on with that company because they have a lot of growth happening very quickly. It was a family-owned business that went from like doing three to five million dollars a year to now they're they're taking deposits for you know well over 50 million dollars worth of product. Uh, with trajectory to go to $50 million by the end of the year. So there's a lot of moving parts there. And so I'm able to put the right people in the right place without having to take over majority ownership, which is what most private equity companies do. I try to create like a win-win situation for our assets because they're typically generationally owned. Um, You know, I don't ever want to become an ammo person. So, you know, I can support them with money. I can support them with time. And then they can take that company however far they want. And then we get to benefit from, you know, how we're invested. And we have that relationship with most of the things that we're invested in. The, the ammunition company, what a, what a fascinating world that you, you're, you're creating for yourself. The ammunition company, what, what are their sales? I'm just trying to get a sense of scale of size yeah. of companies. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when they started... They were a simple reloader. I don't know. Are you a gun person here in California? I, I'm going to be honest. I'm I'm from Ohio. I hate okay. guns. 
Yeah. I think there should be no guns anywhere in the world. And, 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 and by the way, I, well, I don't know why I feel so compelled to say this. I'm actually not particularly liberal, but I just hate, I just like, what if nobody had any guns anywhere? I think you could make a case that there would be fewer murders, but that's not what the podcast is about. So that was a digression yeah. we could disregard. I was well, curious about their sales. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's, so um, no, I'm not a gun person. There's, yeah. So there's like um, you have to remove like the emotion and the and the politics out of investing. Um, this For is sure. the other like benefit. Of, yeah. The other benefit of like going through an actively managed fund over something else like your retirement accounts sitting in the market that have lost 30 percent is that, you know, we take the emotion out of it. Right. If you were managing your own stock portfolio with no experience, you'd be like in panic mode, selling, experiencing all these loss. like the market would be a crazy place for you. It can be crazy in the private equity space too, but we're like paying attention. So the the ammunition company, I'm not a gun person either. I have two big 75 pound dogs. No one's coming into my house. Okay. So um, (laughs) I'm not a gun person. I'm a money person. And you know what makes money? Bullets. So bullets are printed money. And I'd I'd rather... I'd rather invest money in bullets and and, and and make money than in some, you know, green hairy fairy company and lose money. Don't get me wrong. We're we're on the same yeah. page. You you don't yeah. go go ahead. Okay. <laughs> if you have if you have 20 years, invest in solar solar. But if you if you have two years, then invest in ammo. So um <laughs> <laughs> and uh we we invested before the war. Okay. So, you know, we're, we're contrarian and we try to be ahead of the game. So I listened to a crazy gun guy about five years ago. He had this um, insane idea for this um, type of cartridge that his son had designed. And um, from there, again, I, I do all this background work. So um, I listened to their crazy idea. I was like, you know, there's not things that you can scale from that. Like you're just focusing on government contracts. You're not quite ready to start taking investment capital. So like, let's let's figure out what the deal actually is. And so it took a couple of years. And then eventually you got to the point where like, okay, focus on the retail um, ammunition calibers and, and do that. Then COVID hit, right? And then we had 5 million brand new gun owners overnight. And guess what they all needed? Ammo. Then we had no ammo. So it was a great time for them to start focusing on the consumer side because now they're trying to feed this beast that's growing, growing every year. Um, and then the war in Ukraine happened. So now it's even crazier, right? And but the issue is, is that if you don't know anything about ammo, the bat there's a there's several components to, to make a bullet. And uh, one of those components is a primer, which is like a very tiny itty bitty like brass cup that holds this like liquidy goo stuff, which the hammer of the gun hits, it creates the explosion, which lights the powder on fire that shoots the projectile. Okay. So I was not an ammunition manufacturer, like expert four years ago, but I know a lot now. And um, so primers are only made by three companies in the United States and they control the entire market. They also use almost a century old manufacturing process with no new technology, innovation, or equipment. So they're at capacity, which is why you don't have any new ammo and why it's so difficult to get ammunition all around the world. This company found a property out in Texarkana, which is right on the border of Texas and Arkansas and Louisiana. It was an old army facility that was their energetics testing building. So they have a building that was already created to test bombs. They The innovation that this company has just through robotics and equipment tooling 
allows them to do like exponentially more product than any of their competitors. And that includes being the fourth primer producer in the United States. So their current capacity is almost 4 billion primers a year. And that's one building. They have room to build 10 of them. The profit margins on each one of those buildings, um, it costs them about $180 million to, um, or they'll make $180 million from that 4 billion primer capacity and the and the net profit from that's around a hundred million dollars. So each one of those buildings can can generate a hundred million dollars worth of profit for that business just in primers. That doesn't even include them manufacturing the, the bullets from the primers. So what what is their current revenue just a range? So they the reason why we're involved is because they have they have a waiting list of clients because they wholesale. So they're sending to distributors, they're sending to um, military contractors who, who make bullets for the military, or they're sending them overseas for foreign governments to use. And so, um, because with foreign aid, when the United States gives the Ukraine billions of dollars, they have to buy US first, right? So if we don't have a US company making primers, they have to go somewhere else. So we're the US people that make them. They've taken they've taken close to fifty million dollars worth of deposits, and they've started generating you know the income from that. But they're stuck at capacity, so they just don't take any more deposits until they can make more primers. And that has to do like we come in and we provide funding for the components. So when they buy the brass, the powder, the chemicals to make the primers, um, we're only financing the um, the component side of things. Uh, they don't want to sell any equity which is where we're interested. And because I've spent four and a half years working on this, um, I do have an opportunity to buy equity of this company, um, but it does not come cheap. And so I'm you know, continuing to raise capital in order to do that. Eventually we'll own um, equity in the company. So, so, you, so you're a lender to, these, to this company? Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Um, and do they have uh, do they have a line of credit? Do they have a banking relationship? Where they, I mean, do they have debt or what? Is they don't what? have they don't have any debt. So the thing about the banks is that they won't fund guns or oil and gas. Huh. The so banks the banks don't fund any type of vice. So you're not going to find banks giving loans to cannabis companies or you know OnlyFans or whatever. Or, you they, know, they, like, won't do, they won't do. And by the way, I said son of a gun and I want you to know that was not a pun. That, that was not a pun <laughs> intended either. Um, but but um, so banks won't lend to it. Why is that? Because that to me would seem to be a, frankly, a great business. Or is that just like a moral thing? Or I, I would never have guessed that. Cannabis, I understand. It's uh, There's a lot of rules when it comes to the the ammo stuff because they're you know regulated and licensed with the federal government you know the alcohol tobacco firearms it goes in there all the time it's just something that banks won't touch i i think banks are becoming irrelevant because they don't do anything except for mortgages they don't help small businesses they won't take the risk i, I don't really find banks to be the best relationship for businesses anymore it's going to be private money and and as investors realize that they can be a bigger part of the U.S. economy growing, the better it's going to get for small businesses in America. Got it. You know, across your portfolio at this point, what percent would you say is debt versus equity? I think it's pretty evenly split. I think we have a little bit more equity, but it's pretty close. Got it. 
And then are you in, in any of these companies, are you the sole source of equity or are you one of you know many sources? Like what, what does that look like? For the coffee deal, we're the only investor. Uh, we have several oil companies where we're the only investor. I guess about half of them. The other half were with a small group of people. Um, it's usually off-market friends and family type investing that we're doing. Uh, there are a couple like fund of funds in there. That's why we're not a fund of funds uh, because we do own these assets directly. Wow. Are these scenarios where they've looked for or other people have tried to inject equity, but you just had the relationship or you're nodding your head? So like, what does that, what's the, that process look like? There's a lot of people who are really good at what they do, but really hate raising capital or they just don't like people that also keeps them from raising capital, but they are very smart and very good at what they do. So uh, one of the oil and gas partners that we have between him and his uh, partners, they've done over a $20 billion worth of oil and gas deals. And that's from like the institutional space. So they've done these massive oil and gas um, acquisitions and financing and through their banking career. So I'm young, but everyone I work with, you know, has the same amount of experience that I am old. So uh, those are the people that I like to work with. And he he's from the banking world. And so he doesn't necessarily like like the investment space. And he partners with a lot of really, really big family offices, but we have a really good relationship. So when he's brought into a deal that might be with a family office, we get carved out little pieces of it. So we were able to partner with him on a deal out in West Texas that the total cost of that project was $100 million. We're not writing a $100 million check, but the family office will. So the family office wrote the $100 million check and let us have about four months to come up with our um, piece of it, which was 15%. So we had to come up with like $14.5 million. And because of the price of oil going up and the production that came off of this field, in the time that it took us to come up with our purchase money, um, the production offset our cost for this acquisition by almost half. So instead of us coming up with you know $4 million in equity and $10 million in debt, um, we only had to come up with like $4 million worth of debt and $3 million worth of equity. So um, it cut our price in half, which is crazy. That just tells you how much production is coming off of this uh, this project. Um, but we would never have been able to go and find a project like that and fund it for a deal like what I have, except for that relationship. So we are the only, we're the anchor investor in there. They create all of their projections, all of their their financial records, everything based on what we want to look at. Um, because besides us as investors, it's just him and his business partner in on that deal. And I don't think they'll ever really want to bring anyone else in because they don't want to work with they don't want to work with investors. They just want to focus on finding really, really good oil deals. And that's kind of where we come in because I love working with investors um, and I know who to go to for the deals. So I see. How many investors are in the fund so far? I think we're we've just crossed over sixty five, so we're somewhere right around seventy investors. Got it. So it sounds like the average is a couple hundred grand per. Yes. Yeah. So some more inevitably, inevitably some less. Mm -hmm. um, 
I guess, um, so, you know, you come from, you know, you made it, you articulated pretty well why you wanted to start doing what you were doing to serve the investors better. And you saw investors not, you know, maybe not served in, in a great way via communication and other aspects of that, those relationships. I guess, what what would you say, you know, to a retail investor that has 100, 200 grand to invest about, you know, what, what do they need to be careful of when investing in a, in a fund? Um, really, really do your due diligence on who the management team is. Um, because there's been several times that I've talked to investors about deals that, um, like, I just know of, of being in the industry. I'm like, that person is in jail, you know, or was in jail and now they're not. And, um, you know, with a simple Google search, you'll see like, this this person has this fraud record, you know, and uh, because you do, you're exposed to a lot of that risk because you are working in the private placement space. Um, and while we do have to register our funds with the SEC is that we're raising capital, it doesn't mean that the SEC's done a background check. It doesn't mean that, you know, there's some sort of insight to that. It just means that, you know, we've done the compliance work that when the SEC does decide to step in, they can they'll find your paperwork there. But um, the reality is, is that I've seen it so many times in my career that you just have people just doing whatever they want. Then they get caught. Then they come up with a new business name and do it again. And they just do it over and over and over again. Um, And they're really good at raising capital. So they're able to do it very fast and they only need a couple million dollars to get away with, you know, whatever they're doing uh, before they're in Panama or, you know, Mexico or, you know, wherever. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the biggest risk is like really just look into the management team um, and, and do your due diligence. If someone's selling you, um, even a coffee farm sounds ridiculous, right? Then there's a pro- there's a lot of coffee farm deals out right now. They're out in Colombia. Um, but you have to, the bad part about this is that you have to do your market research, right? If you're going to get into this space, like, and you're going deal by deal, it takes it takes a lot of time because then you have to become an expert in that industry, at right. least briefly. And if you knew anything about coffee, it's well, like Colombia is like really oversaturated. And it, while it might be cheap to produce, like there's a billion people doing it. How do you create this, you know, a more unique product? And what's the return? I've had an investor who was dead set on investing in this um exotic fruit farm thing in Brazil. And when you when you Google the company, it's it was out of a out of a space that had um, other companies registered to that single office. And so then you look up those companies and their other like investment opportunities. And it's like for a teak farm and some other stuff that are all grown on that property. He's like, well, I've been, I've been down there. And I was like, do you think that somebody would spend $50,000 to bring a bunch of millionaires down to Belize and like treat them to the, you know, the resort lifestyle and then just pick a farm to take them to? And show them like, oh, here's the farm, and and then you all write them a million dollar check, and they've just made seven million dollars. <laughs> that that fifty thousand dollar investment on that guy's behalf just made him seven million dollars, and you'll never hear from him again. Like, there's a lot of that goes on, so it's it's a risky place to be in. So, really understanding your managing team is going to be beneficial to you. Got it. And then. Just a brush stroke, and we don't need to go over every deal because you've it's a, it's a Monday morning, and you have you have work you have to do. But <laughs> you know you're into coffee. You you are lending money to an ammo company, which sounds that sounds conservative as all get out. 
in urine, cannabis. What other what other asset classes? Obviously, oil and gas. Are there any other ones that your uh, fund is touching right now? Yeah. So we have some money invested in fintech. We have some money invested in real estate because we have such high hurdles. And I don't think we've talked about this yet, but I don't charge any fees in my fund. So that's the other way that investors get really taken advantage of in the private equity space are fees. Private equity have higher fees than like your broker in the market um, who are, you know, siphoning off one, two percent of your portfolio, whether they lose you money or not. But in private equity, that number is typically between three and five percent, depending on how good they are. Uh, and then they have a waterfall, right? Then they're taking their split of the back end. And then they expense all of the expense of the fund to the investors, right? The investors are paying the bill for their private jets and their fancy hotels and you know whatever else they're doing. That was probably the biggest like abuse that was happening in private equity from my point of view. And so when I structured this fund and the funds in the future is that um, one will have in the future, the funds will have a management fee just because I've proven my point. But in this fund, I don't charge a management fee. So, and I only take 20% of the upside and that's after the the investors have earned 10%. So basically they're getting hundred percent of the first 10%. And then we split everything else, 80, 20, there's no waterfall. There's no nothing. So when we have these, you know, five or 10 X exits, you know, you're getting a huge chunk of that. And then I, you know, make my cut. Um, but I expense everything through myself. Like I've made money in my career and I'm putting my money where my mouth is. And so I'm willing to take that risk in order to buy the assets that I want to buy that'll produce the returns that benefit both the investor and myself. But if we're not making over 30% a year, then I, the fund manager, am working for free. So those are the kinds of hurdles we have to hit with these assets. And real estate's really hard to do that with. Uh, we have we have a couple pieces of real estate, but they're, they were very off market and we have a lot of control over what happens in this space uh, in order to make it the most profitable. So we bought a property out in Greenville, Texas, which is east of Dallas. There's a lake out there. They're starting to build like these massive home communities out, like DR Horton's moving out there, right? And when DR Horton moves out there, then everybody else does. Because uh, they built these massive, you know, home uh, communities there. So we bought a property out there that was a, a an office suite place that was used for salons. So like, there's like a nail person and an eyebrow person, some hair people, and so we owner financed that building, put a property manager in there who has experience in the as, as a salon owner. And we basically have been able to take that property and increase the revenue like overnight, increase all the rents, uh, which are weekly rents. So we're collecting, you know, five or six thousand dollars a week from the tenants of the building. We're getting ready to renovate, knock down some walls and do booth rentals, which is we have a waiting list now since we've went since we've announced all the renovations in this building. Um, it's also been like a community talking point. We it used to be a restaurant that used to be called like the Caddyshack or Cadillacs or something, and it had this big pink Cadillac out front. This is an old Texas town, okay? So like this pink Cadillac was like very important to them, and then it was taken away, um, and then it was the salon building. It just kind of was there. No one really cared about it. Um, but when we announced that we bought the property and put this person in place to take it over. Uh, and then turned it into the Babe Cave. It's turning into like a selfie museum. We went and found that pink Cadillac, uh, repainted it, and we're putting it back on its 
concrete block. And so the whole town is like super jazzed about this entire thing. And uh, so there's like a waiting list of people that want to get into the building, which means that there's a, you know, even bigger waiting list of people who want to be, you know, participate with the businesses in the building. Uh, and we'll do a, we'll do a, a grand opening in October, but the booth rentals and salons, we're going to charge somewhere between 200 and $250 a week. And the first space we're building out is going to have somewhere between 15 and 20 booths. So the cash flow opportunity on that is massive. Um, and we paid under a, under a million dollars for this property. It's worth almost two. Good for you. <laughs> so, you know, these are deals that we're able to structure when there's not a lot of like convoluted stuff going on. So that's, who, that's kind of who, our jam. That, well, that's, and who's going to run that? That's going to be run by the Babe Cave, which is um, a husband-wife team down in uh, Greenville. They are community people. Like, they know everybody in the community. Are they cosmetologists? Emily is. Okay. Emily, yeah, Emily is like, um, she. the reason why we partnered with her on this is that she's done this before. She took another salon in Dallas that was losing money every month to making over $50,000 a month in revenue. So... Not only has she done this before, she's also like four foot nine and three pounds and is the like fieriest person I've ever met in my life. And, you know, and they're country people. So my CPA calls them Bubba's, all these people that I have connections with as Bubba's, is that they would rather jump off a cliff than lose somebody their money. Like these are the types of people that are committed to doing the right thing for the right reasons. And, um, you know, I think it will succeed just because they refuse to let it fail. Yeah, got it. Well, it's, it's their business, right? Or, or is it? Do you, do, you, do you own the business too, or do you just own the real estate? I own the real estate. They're your tenant. Yes. Yeah. They'll do well at that. I mean, yeah. that's, a great, that's, a, that's a great business. And, um, you know, just as, as long as there's the population to support that business, I mean, that, that's a very... Uh, I know this from my past that basically, um, you know, salons are a recession, not recession proof, but recession resistant for sure. Because when are women going to start, stop getting their hair done? Never. So that's, a, that's, I happen to know for a fact, this is a, a very good business. Well, listen, I, I have enjoyed this conversation immensely and learned quite a bit. Kellyanne, how, how would one get a hold of you, of you if they want to discuss participating in your fund or? Have any questions, et cetera? So um, the easiest way is just to go on to our website, which is alternativewealthpartners.com. Um, there's a contact sheet there. You can uh, just put on a request. I think it pops up on my um, calendar thing. There's also info at alternativewealthpartners.com. I'm also extremely active on LinkedIn. So I manage my LinkedIn. I don't manage my other social medias, but by LinkedIn, I'm like kind of obsessed with. So if you find me on LinkedIn, it's just Kellyanne Winget. I think I'm the only one. And you know, if you want to shoot me a message on there, I, you know, I'm the one that responds to those. I'm pretty Googleable. So if you just Google Kellyanne Winget, it'll be me in a Bollywood Hollywood star. So I see. Okay. <laughs> well, I've in, in without a, a criminal record. Okay. Have a fantastic week, and uh, thanks for all your patience and me getting this uh, podcast up and going. And uh, I will talk to you very soon. We'll do all right, sounds good. Podcast and see how you're doing. All right, thanks. Bye. All right, bye bye.